<clears throat> so we continue with numbers. You'll find um, the reading in your Red Bibles. It's on page 121, 121, um, page 121 in your Red Bibles, and it's numbers 13, from 17 to 14, 4. <clears throat> Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zen to Reop, near Lebo Hamath. They went in, <coughs> up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? 
Our wives and our little ones will become prey, a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Um, I'm Terry and our second reading is still in Numbers, uh, starting from verse 20 of chapter 14, page 122. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, Forty days, a year for each day. You shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered against me. In this wilderness they shall, be, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. When the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, they, the people mourned greatly and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we'll go up to the place that the Lord promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there, for there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. The Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them 
and pursued them even to Hormah. So we're in the second week of our series going through the book of Numbers. Uh, as Michael mentioned last week when he preached, there's 36 chapters of Numbers, uh, but only five weeks to do the series. Uh, so like last week, we'll only be doing a brief overview of this morning's passage, which is Numbers chapters 10 to 14. The reading was from chapters 13 and 14, but 10 to 14 is what we're going to be looking at. Uh, so if you could keep your Bibles open to uh, that general area, uh, that would be good. So we find ourselves in our passage, we find ourselves today in a very different context to the Israelites that we read about. Uh, we're not living nomadic lives in the wilderness. We're not living in the desert. God willing, we won't become a desert. And we've not just been rescued from a life of slavery. And as a result, when we read through passages like today's Numbers, uh, we can often see it as something of a dry history. You know, something that happened a long time ago, a long way away, to people that we've never met. But despite that... Human nature doesn't change, no matter where, no matter when. And so if we take a close look at the example of ancient Israel in the wilderness, we might see reflected in them something of ourselves. And in seeing the consequences that befell Israel, we might also receive a warning of the consequences that may befall us, should we not learn from this example? And more than that, we may see foreshadowed in Israel God's promises to us. For the God that provided for the Israelites and the God that led them towards such a great promise and great inheritance is the same God that we serve today. It's the same God who provides for us now. It's the same God who fulfills his promises to us in Jesus. Uh, but before we can get to some of these big themes that are found in Numbers 10 to 14, uh, we need to understand at least something of the passage itself. So we can see in our passages today, and I'm not sure if there's a slide for this, there might be. Oh, there it is. Uh, we see five episodes of sin in judgment uh, between chapters 11 and chapters 14. And in each of these instances, the Israelites, they sin against God and then they face judgment accordingly. So let's have a brief look at what these are. Uh, we're introduced to the first of these episodes uh, right at the start of chapter 11. Uh, we read in verse 1 of chapter 11, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So after just having taken a three-day journey from Mount Sinai, where they were camped in last week's passage, uh, going toward the promised land, we find the Israelites once again camped in their tents in the wilderness. And we're told here at the beginning of chapter 11 uh, that they begin to complain about their misfortunes. 
Now, we're not told what the exact complaints they had are, but evidently their complaints don't have a very solid basis. And God's displeasure with the ingratitude of his people is expressed in the form of a fire that consumes the outer parts of the camp. So that's the first episode. Uh, Secondly, we see in chapter 11 from verse 4, immediately afterwards, we read this. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And I presume that most of you are familiar with manna, but if you don't know what it is, that is the bread and honey-like substance that God gave to the Israelites from heaven when they were in the wilderness. And to translate what the Israelites are really saying here is the translation, a life of slavery in Egypt would be better than a monotonous diet. (laughs) Never mind that this sustenance was given to them without cost and without any work on their behalf. Better, according to this rabble, was to have a varied diet, varied diet, under slavery than a simple diet that comes with the benefit of being free. And we see God's judgment of this melodramatic moaning in chapter 11 from verse 31. Look down at verse 31. God causes quail to fall around the camp, a day's journey in either direction, up to 90 centimetres high, in answer to this complaining. But along with it, he strikes down with a plague those who had the strong craving those who desired more than God had provided for them. Now, moving on quickly, we see our third example of sin and judgment. This time, not from the crowd, but from Moses' very own family. Uh, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, we read in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. He had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Now it seems from that last statement that Miriam and Aaron's true objection to the position of Moses came not from his Cushite wife, but from the belief that they themselves deserved the same privileges that Moses had. That if Moses got to lead Israel because he was God's prophet, then surely Moses and Aaron, sorry, Miriam and Aaron, who according to themselves had also spoken God's word, surely they deserved to have an equivalent authority to be co-leaders alongside Moses. The case of Moses' wife was a pretense to vent their true underlying frustrations, frustrations that arose out of a misplaced sense of their own importance. And we see God's judgment of this presumption from verse 10, chapter 12, verse 10. 
Miriam is stricken with leprosy. And although the Lord does heal her, it's only after a lesson well learnt. Do not speak out against the Lord's appointment. And as a brief side note, if you're wondering why Aaron didn't get struck down with leprosy as well when he was involved in the rebellion just as much as Miriam was, uh, it was because Aaron was the high priest and Miriam got sent out of the camp for a week. If Aaron had got been sent out of the camp for a week as well, none of the sacrifices that the Lord commanded would have able to be happen. Therefore, the people of Israel would have been subject to God's wrath against their sin without a sacrifice, and essentially he would have consumed them all. So it was an act of mercy for all the people of Israel that Aaron was spared from this as high priest. Now, the fourth instance of rebellion against God, of grumbling, discontentment and distrust, we can see it in chapters 13 and 14. Uh, this is what we read in our readings from earlier. God has brought his people to the edge of the promised land, the land that he had promised to give to the descendants of Abraham, a land overflowing with milk and honey. But before the Israelites go in to occupy this land, Moses sends a group of men, one from each tribe, to spy it out. And after 40 days of exploration, uh, they return. 13 verse 27, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its very fruit. This is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And this leads the spies, with the exception of Caleb, to argue against going into the promised land out of the fear of these terrifying people who dwell there. And to gain support for their cowardly act of not going into the promised land, they begin to spread a bad report of the land amongst all the people in the congregation of Israel, uh, which you can see from verse 32. And the people, they believe what the spies have to say, which leads to the complaints of chapter 14, in which the Israelites moan, once again, that it would have been better for them to die in Egypt or to perish in the wilderness rather than go into God's promised land. In fact, so opposed are they from entering the land of God's promise that they decide to choose for themselves a different leader and head back to the land in which they were slaves. Moses, Aaron, Caleb and Joshua, they try to convince the people otherwise, appealing to the Lord's provision, only to be threatened with being stoned to death. And the seriousness of this episode of faithlessness and rebellion leads to the greatest judgment on the people so far. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. One year of the wilderness for each day in which the spies were spying out the land. The people had judged death in the wilderness to be preferable to God's promises. And God answered their cries, not in the way they would have hoped. 
And the fifth and final uh, episode of Sin and Judgment uh, that we see in our passage is at the end of chapter 14 uh, from verse 39. Uh, Having brought upon themselves the Lord's judgment of 40 years in the wilderness, uh, the people mourn. They recognise the sinfulness of their disobedience. Now, that's a good thing. However, rather than to submit themselves to the discipline of God, they decide to take it upon themselves to avoid the judgment that came with their disobedience by disobeying God again. They decide that now, now they can't go into it, now they do want to enter the promised land. Moses warns them that this is an incredibly stupid idea, yet the Israelites ignore God yet again, they ignore Moses yet again, and they attempt an invasion of the promised land without the Lord's assistance to a foreseeable defeat. So now that we've had a brief look at the errors of Israel in the wilderness, what are we to take from it? What application can we draw from this pattern of sin and judgment to inform how we live as Christians today in the 21st century? Well, our passage gives us three big points of application for our lives today. One, we ought to be obedient. Two, we ought to be content. And three, we ought to have faith in God. Now, the first of our three points, and perhaps the most straightforward, is obedience. The Israelites disobeyed God time and time again, as we're told in the passage, and they were punished accordingly. The complainers caused a fire near the camp. The ones with a craving received a plague. The rejection of Moses' authority led to Miriam's leprosy. Those who went to battle without the Lord were defeated. And most profoundly, the refusal to enter the promised land led to 40 years in exile. Not too difficult for us to see from this that we should pretty much do the opposite of everything that the Israelites did. When we, when we hear the commands of God, we should listen and obey. Now, I'm not going to flesh this out too much here, but I will point out that obedience to God doesn't pop up out of nowhere. No, obedience to God flows out of a heart that is satisfied in him, a heart of faith and a heart of contentment. Which leads to our second point of application. We ought to be content with the Lord's provision. You'll remember from last week's sermon, if you were here, Michael was telling us that the provision of the Lord was one of the major themes of the whole book of Numbers. And that stands true for our passage today. We can see some of the examples. God provided his people with enough manna to fulfill their nutritional needs during their wilderness journeys. He provided them with leaders to teach and administer his law. He provided them with access to himself through the work of the priests. He delivered them out of slavery. He allowed these people to plunder the Egyptians of gold and he brought them to a good land overflowing with milk and honey. And yet what did the Israelites do on every single occasion? They complain. They moan, they grumble, and in general, they refuse to be content. 
it seems that no matter what the Lord did for his people, it wasn't good enough according to them. Which should lead us to a moment of self-reflection where we ask, well, how often do we grumble like the Israelites did? How often do you moan or do you find yourself complaining that you haven't got enough, that you haven't got exactly what you want or what you think that you really need and how it's all so unfair that you're missing out on so much or going through some inconsequential inconvenience. Because if we be honest with ourselves, how much of what we complain about and groan about day to day is actually worth complaining and groaning about? Do you find yourself complaining about ultimately trivial things like a lack of entertainment, boredom, not going on that exciting holiday? Do you grumble that you're not making enough money? If you're a student, do you moan that you're cursed of exams and assignments that come with a university education that is out of reach of most people on this planet? Are you someone who finds yourself sweating the small stuff? Because so much of the complaining that we do so often, it's really complaining about God's provision. When we moan that we don't have enough, what we're doing is grumbling against God. In effect, we're saying, God, everything you've given me still isn't good enough. When you grumble that you haven't got enough, you're grumbling about God's provision. And when you grumble about God's provision, you're grumbling about him. Ought we not rather, as Christians, to be a people of praise and thanks? Ought we not rather rejoice in the bountiful blessings that God has given us, especially places here like Armadale? Even in drought, we still have food to eat and shelter for our heads which is a lot more than a lot of people on this planet can say. And for those of us who believe, we have hope not just in this life, but more importantly, in the life that is to come. We ought to be content with the great blessings that the Lord has given to us. After all, he knows our needs. He knows what's best for us. He provides everything that we need for this life and the next. Trust in your heavenly father and his provision. And that brings us to our third point of application. Now, this point, I think, is the most important because our contentment and our obedience, the other two points, depend on this. We're talking about faith. Because when it comes to the heart of things, You won't be content with God's provision and you won't be someone who obeys God if you don't have faith in him, if you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus. Because in order to be content with the provision of God, you must be able to trust, have faith that what he has provided is enough and that he will continue to provide for all your needs. In order to be faithful in obedience from the heart, you need to have a heart 
that trusts in him. Because at the core of Israel's disobedience, at the core of the discontentment in the wilderness, was the reality that they simply didn't trust in their God. They didn't trust that what God was doing for them in the wilderness was for their good. They didn't trust in his appointment of Moses as leader. They didn't trust that God would give them the ability to occupy the promised land. They didn't trust God at his word. And this connection between unbelief and disobedience, it didn't go unnoticed by other biblical writers. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 3. So that's Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 7. Uh, So if you go from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, we read this, quoting from the psalm that Tam read for us earlier. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation. And said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And again from Hebrews 3.15. As it is said today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So the writer of Hebrews, 1,500 years later, connects the failure to enter God's rest, God's promised lands, with unbelief to a lack of faith. And the purpose of the writer of Hebrews bringing up this story to the Christians back then and for us today is so that we might be warned of the dire consequences of unbelief. Because in Numbers, the unbelief of the Israelites, it manifested in discontent and disobedience leading to a denial of ultimately earthly blessings in the promised land. But for us today who do not believe and do not heed the word of God, we stand to lose the blessings and pleasures of God, not just in this life, but we're in danger of rejecting the pleasures of God in the next as well. The Israelites, they rejected God's promise of a good land, but simply land. What we're in danger of rejecting is the promise of life itself for in Jesus all the promises of God find their amen 
In Jesus, we have an inheritance that will never fade. Not just a stretch of good land in the Middle East, but the very kingdom of God. Don't be one of those who reject the salvation of our God and life in Jesus for the things of this world, for the consequences of not putting your faith in him. It's not a mere 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It's not only a plague or simply physical death. It's separation from the eternal pleasures of God. It's to be subject to his righteous wrath for all eternity. Do not let that happen to you. Do not harden your hearts where you know God is speaking to you even today. If you have not done so already, turn away from your sins, repent of your hardness of heart, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. God has provided for us a great salvation in the Lord Jesus. In Jesus, he delivers us from the dominion of death into his own kingdom, to joy and provision better than all the treasures and all the things of this world. In Jesus, God brings us not just to a land, but to himself. So don't be like those who harden their hearts against God in unbelief. Be someone who stands firm in the eternal promises of God through confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.